if we are going to truly know ourselves, we can only do that by coming into the presence of God, by listening to who God says we are. Yeah. And I think Genesis 1 lays the foundation for, for who, what it means to be human for who we are. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. I'm Ken Keithley. And I'm Benjamin Quinn. And this is the Christ and Culture podcast. We have a great episode lined up for you today. But first, let's begin with our segment in the news. This week, we mark the beginning of Lent. Dr. Quinn, in recent years, evangelicals have shown a renewed interest in Lent and the liturgical calendar as a whole. What is Lent? And is this increasing interest in the liturgical calendar a good thing? So the second that you said liturgical calendar, many of our folks uh, turned down or tuned out uh, on the podcast, but I want to ask them to tune right back in because all this is, when we talk about the liturgical calendar, this is the calendar that originally was developed by early Christians as an alternative to celebrating a, pa- a pagan calendar. And for someone who grew up, who's what I often tell people, my liturgical calendar growing up was baseball, basketball, and football season. And people immediately, even if that's not their experience, they get that. They understand that that people sort of wind their lives around these various seasons of the year. We do this through sports activities. We do this through hunting and fishing season. We do this through various arts events that may pop up throughout the year. And we certainly do this through the kinds of holidays that we put on the calendar. And Christian or not, especially in the West, virtually everyone knows and probably celebrates to some degree Christmas and Easter. And this is by no means new, and it's by no means a merely Western thing. By the 5th century uh, AD, the 5th century, among early Christians, a pretty basic liturgical calendar or church calendar had already been developed um, that included both Easter and uh, eventually Christmas. But Paschal, the Paschal season, especially Easter, was really the first and most fundamental uh, of any of these kind of components to the liturgical calendar. By the 5th century, the Christian calendar was well established with what we call two cycles and four seasons. And those cycles included nativity and paschal, and really the primary of those being paschal or the Easter season. What we call that now is simply Easter, but at the same time, it begins roughly 40 days prior to Easter Sunday, especially in the West. Forty day, Roughly 40 days prior to Easter Sunday, we begin with this season of Lent, which is really 40 days walking with Jesus towards the cross. And it comes especially to a climax in Uh, the Sunday before, so Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, entering into what we call Holy Week and has been called Holy Week for a long time. Uh, And each day of that week, but especially on Wednesday, beginning with what we call Ash Wednesday, a lot of times Baptists don't realize that when you walk around on that Wednesday and you see people that have black, in fact, I've literally seen uh, evangelicals and even Baptists go to people and say, did you know you have something black on your forehead? And it's a cross because they attended some type of either a Catholic service or someone who participates in Ash Wednesday as a way of remembering this is the week of Jesus's suffering and passion. And so on that Wednesday, we especially get what I would call close to the cross, and we walk with Christ up to that point. Now, the question was, is it good that more evangelicals are beginning to remember this? To Because it, it's not new. It's actually very, very old, and they're beginning to celebrate this anew. Is it a good thing? I think it's absolutely a good thing. Even in our church, this is just a small country Baptist church in Spring Hope, North Carolina, 
we're, we're beginning to intentionally pay more attention to the church calendar. So uh, we're coming, we've come out of ordinary time. So we come to Advent's the beginning of, of the first Advent's the beginning of the church calendar. Then we go into Epiphany and then to ordinary time until we get to Lent. So during ordinary time, one thing that we did was, first of all, told our people this is ordinary time in the church calendar. So during our prayer times on Sunday morning service, we prayed for people in ordinary vocations, people that just do everyday ordinary jobs, highlighted some of those, especially the ones that are most common in our church and prayed for them. And, and then also told them the next celebration on the church calendar will be Lent leading to Easter. And we're leading them now into that as well. I, I think it's really helpful because it reorients our calendars around the life of Christ and not just around whatever, either pagan celebration, sports activities, or whatever else sort of dictates the terms of our life. Yeah, I think that um, in the vacuum of not having a liturgical calendar that many Baptists uh, and many evangelical churches have adopted a very secular calendar. And you think, what, what do you mean by that? Well, you think about churches that say we, we, don't, we don't follow any type of liturgy, yet they have Mother's Day, mm-hmm. Father's Day, Memorial Day, Fourth uh, of July, mm-hmm. uh, in patriotic yeah. services, um, and uh, even Super Bowl Sunday, yeah. <laughs> uh, and and don't quite realize how the very culture that they're living in is giving them it's their giving liturgy. them a calendar. That's right. It's giving them a calendar, and you know, even and none of, there's nothing wrong with none, any of those. None of that those is are bad. perfectly fine. Yeah. But at the same time, we sort of fall into rhythms, whether you mean to or not, and especially especially families with younger kids, the rhythm that you're sort of forced into is, are, are my kids in school right now or are they out of school right now? And then what does that look like in terms of a season? Or if you're in a year-round school, uh, are we tracked in or are we tracked out? And how does that change sort of the, the day-to-day activities of moms and dads getting in the car and taking kids to school and then to work and sports and all the rest of it? And, and, and all that's just, it's just ordinary, it's just natural. But we don't have to be forced into that just sort of passive requirement of whatever culture tells us we have to do next. We can actually back up and recognize the church thought about this a very long time ago and said, hey, we're going to live in the city of man, so to speak, as, as Christians, as citizens of the city of God. But at the same time, how can we think about dedicating not only our spaces, but even our time, our calendar to Christ? And especially the question was, how can we on a, on a year-by-year basis walk with Jesus throughout his life all year long? And that's what the church calendar does for us. So in the four Gospels, we find where the religious leaders of Jesus' day had turned the rituals into something that were, that were mere formalities at the very best, mm-hmm. and many times a cloak for, for some very bad behaviors. Yet the New Testament also affirms rituals. Uh, I'm thinking now of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So what is the proper way to think about the rhythms and rituals of life? How can they be a positive spiritual forming thing? Yeah, so any kind of ritual or routine can certainly be emptied of its meaning when it becomes merely ritual and routine. And so I think church leaders do well to not only to develop healthy rituals and rhythms, but also to always, always be on the front end of communicating the meaning within and behind, and it's oftentimes the history that's connected to those kind of rituals and rhythms. Otherwise, you get whole generations of young people who will, and this, this is the case in, in other 
you know, traditions across Christianity, whether that's Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, or even various stripes of Protestantism, who they grew up doing certain things. They were going to cate- catechesis, or they were reciting such and such creed, or they were, in our context, they had to go to RAs and GAs or, you know, whatever else. That, but if you ask them, why did you do that? I don't know. It's just what we did. Well, why did we celebrate the supper uh, quarterly, oftentimes in Baptist churches? Well, I don't know. Or, or weekly in, in other, other traditions. Why did you do that? Well, I don't know. Well, if, if our people don't know, that's because our church leaders didn't do a good job explaining not only this is what we do by way of the ritual, but why we do that. I think we always have to keep those things in view. And I'd also say, and I know that this, is a, this can be a hot topic in terms of how often do you celebrate the supper, for example. I'm personally really encouraged that, at least among, among Baptists and evangelicals more broadly, um, that there's a turn towards a more common and a more frequent celebration of the supper. But I will, I will say, I do think that there's a fair warning here that if you celebrate the supper every single week, first of all, it's a wonderful thing, beautiful thing. And I, I meet uh, people my age almost every week who talk about, you know, we've been celebrating, and I can't imagine not doing it anymore. And I, wanna, and I just want to say, I love that. It's beautiful. What about your kids? Mm-hmm. Will they say the same, or will they come back, you know, in 30 or 40 years and go, we did it every week and no one told me why, and it just became empty ritualism, so they're going to go back to the quarter system. And I, and I just want to say, you can fall off that horse either way, but let's be really thoughtful about maintaining proper ritual and routine and, and liturgy, but also always explaining the meaning behind that uh, and making sure that all of these things are, are held together in proper fashion. What does it mean to be human? Recently at the Center for Faith and Culture here at Southeastern, we hosted a conference entitled Exploring Personhood, aimed at addressing that very question. One of our guests for that conference was Dr. Carmen Imes, and today we are very excited to have her join us on the podcast. Dr. Imes is Associate Professor of Old Testament at Biola University in beautiful California. As she told me earlier already, it's nice and sunny. She's also the author of Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters. Dr. Imes, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So let's just jump in. To begin with, uh, at the Exploring Personhood Conference just a couple of weeks ago, we brought together voices from different disciplines, uh, including Old Testament, New Testament, historical theology, theology, as well as a couple of the hard sciences to talk about this issue of what does it mean to be human. You brought the perspective, especially from the Old Testament, um, how does the Old Testament speak to personhood? Mm. Yeah, the, what an amazing conference. It was so great to hear from across the spectrum. I would say that the Old Testament has a lot to offer us on this question of, of what does it mean to be human? We have, of course, the beginnings of humanity in Genesis. We have the creation of humanity, the passage that says that we're made in the image of God, which helps to, to define what it means to be human. Uh, We have the fall and the beginnings of working towards redemption through Abraham and his family. And so we can see sort of the full gamut of human experience, even just in the book of Genesis. But then as we move through the rest of the Old Testament, there are all kinds of resources that help people engage with God and with each other. And so I think we're just we just have a whole banquet of resources like the Psalms that help us to connect with God emotionally and bring our emotional life into his presence. 
We have the book of Ecclesiastes that explores the quest for meaning and wrestles with uh, the way things don't work out in the world the way that we want them to. We have the book of Job that wrestles with suffering. And we have Song of Songs that explores human love and intimacy. So all kinds of aspects of what it means to be human are addressed in the Old Testament. Yeah, I want to ask you, you mentioned different books there and even uh, different books from the Old Testament. And if we were to sort of go to key Old Testament books, just just by default, which ones might we think would speak most directly to the notion of being human? Of course, we probably think of Genesis 1 and 2 and yeah. 3 right off the bat. Yeah. But then you move pretty quickly into some of the more poetic uh, sides mm-hmm. of the of mm-hmm. the Old Testament. I'm curious, what about lamentations? What mm. might lamentations teach us about what it means to be human? Absolutely. Um, you know, Lamentations is a book of deep grief over the destruction of Jerusalem. And so I think what it does is it invites us to express our deep grief to God uh, in a way similar to the Psalms that I, I think sometimes we have this idea that being a Christian or following God is a is a cerebral thing. It's about what we think about God or what we believe in our heads. And it's about our spirit going to heaven when we die. This We have this very disembodied view of what it means to be human. But the Old Testament presents us with a very embodied humanness. So in Lamentations, we have deep grief that affects the writer bodily, you know, not just tears, but but aches and groaning and this, this sense of angst. And by, by including that in scripture, I think um, the Old Testament is issuing an invitation to us to bring our whole selves into the presence of God, mm. um, that what happens on the stage of human history matters, that the way it affects our bodies matters and should be acknowledged. Mm. That's fantastic. I want to come back to this theme of suffering as, as part of being human here in a few mm-hmm. minutes, especially just in light of some cultural issues uh, around us right now. Yeah. But more directly to your, your topic at the conference and even related to your book, Talk to me about the Imago Dei. How does the, what do we mean when we talk about the Imago Dei and especially mm-hmm. from, from an Old Testament angle, which is your area of expertise mm-hmm. and how does it affect what it means to be human? Yeah. So for anyone listening, who's not familiar with that phrase, Imago Dei, that's the Latin way of saying image of God. And the classic passage that we, uh, where we first hear this concept that humans are made in God's image is in Genesis chapter one, uh, starting in verse 26, when God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And the next couple of verses go along with that. But some key ideas we can already see there is that when at the moment when God makes humans, he, he is imbuing them with a different uh, kind of dignity than the rest of creation. Humans are set apart. They're set over the other animals and, um, or over the animals. Um, I don't define humans as animals, but we are creatures, right? So God creates all of us. We're created beings and yet we're set apart from the animals. And our role then is, um, is to rule over, to bring order to creation, to, to carry on the work God has begun in Genesis 1, to help create space for human and animal flourishing. So I, I look at it, there's all kinds of things touched by that um, creation, care, order, flourishing, dignity of all people. Um, verse 27 points to the 
the um, partnership between men and women in this task. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So from the very beginning, it's very clear that both men and women are made in God's image. Um, one of the things that I talked about in my conference presentation is that I believe that the Imago Day is our identity, that we are God's image, and that it's that's something about who we are and what our status is that cannot be lost. And all of these other things that I talked about, creation care and um, rulership over creation, um, providing for flourishing, those are all implications of having been made in God's image or made as God's image, that um, the work that we do is kind of flows out of our identity, but that the identity itself can't be lost. Okay. So let me press in on that just for yep. clarity. So you're saying that the way that you understand Imago Day or us being imagers, it's, mm -hmm. it's more about the is of who we are and less about yes. the does of who we are. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So it's yeah. a, the fancy term then being it's, it's more about the ontology of the human mm -hmm. being, less about the function, but you're also, yes. do I hear you right? You're not, you're not trying to divorce these two things. You're saying that it's a necessary outflow that we, that mm -hmm. we care for creation and that we, we create order in the world, these, these kinds of things, right? Yes, I think that's a good way of putting it, a necessary outflow. Um, although not necessary in the sense that if we're not actually ruling over the earth, we're not human. Like, I, I don't yeah. think we can say that. So part of my concern here in distinguishing between our identity and our vocation is that there are lots of people who are unable to fulfill the functions of God's image because of a disability, because they're in a coma, because um, there, there's some kind of thing that's um, preventing them from reaching their full potential. Mm -hmm. And so I want to be careful to say that every human being is God's image, whether or not they're able to carry out the functions that are implied by that role. Yeah. Yeah. That's helpful. So just to, to go a little bit popular level for just a minute, a, a popular song that is sung in some churches, contemporary song goes something like this. I am who you say I am. But you say mm -hmm. I am who you say I am means I am an image or an imager or I am the yes. Imago Dei of God. And as yes. a result of that, then living faithfully and responsibly before the Lord as an imager are the functional attributes that you described earlier. Yes, I actually love that song. And I think it's such an important message for us today because we live in an age of self-definition and self-discovery yeah. yeah. where the pressure is on to kind of create our own identity and mm -hmm. to portray ourselves in a certain way to the world. And I believe if, if we are going to truly know ourselves, we can only do that by coming into the presence of God, by listening mm -hmm. to who God says we are. Yeah. And I think Genesis 1 lays the foundation for, for who, what it means to be human for who we are. Yeah, so helpful. I hope my 15, 13, 9, and 5-year-olds are listening to this. So <laughs> um, now I want to I press in on the, the male-female matter for a minute. So. Yeah. Let's talk about this intersection between uh, Imago Day and then male-female. Yeah. So if I heard you earlier a minute ago, as you read Genesis uh, 1, 26, 27, 28, mm -hmm. uh, male and female, he created them. And all of this is, is wrapped up still in uh, the image of God connection. Yep. yep. Um, so what does it mean if, if the image of God is our identity? What's the difference for being, uh, I, for being in the image of God as a female versus being in the image of God as a male? 
and especially when it comes to those sort of functional attributes that that flow out of that. Is there a distinction to think through or how would you work through that? I think the way I would describe it is um, we're both equally the image of God and we equally need each other to to fulfill our functions as Mm -hmm. God's image. So right away, God tells the first humans to be fruitful and increase in number which you can't do all by yourself. Right. Right. So there is a dimension in which the the sexual relationship between man and woman enables them to fulfill um, part of God's design, which is to fill the earth. Um, I don't think that that means that we can boil down all the partnership intended between men and women to the marriage relationship. I don't think marriage is intended to bear all of that weight. Um, What I see happening as we move into chapter two and we get this specific story about the man in the garden, and then he's alone, and that's problematic. And so God makes him a counterpart. I see this as a as a signal that to, in order to accomplish the work to which God's called us, we need each other. And there's something different about the opposite sex, and somehow together we complete that picture of what God wants to accomplish. That's, that's insightful. Would you say something along the lines of, in, in one sense, we are the image of God individually. We, we are imagers all by ourselves. Yes. But at the yeah. same time, there are some things that we're responsible to do, that, that functional side. There's some things that we're responsible to do that we can only do in relationship and in community. And that that yeah. too begins to reflect the image of God. Yes, we as a whole, humanity as a whole is yeah. um, the image of God. But I think you're right we individually are as well. And that comes through in Genesis chapter nine, after the flood, um, God gives Noah some instructions and says, okay, now you can eat meat. Um, but I'm going to demand an accounting from animals and from humans for the lives of other humans. Mm. And he says, whoever sheds human blood by humans, shall their blood be shed for in the image of God has God made mankind. Mm. So that, to translate that mankind sounds like images plural, but it's clear that any individual human that is mm-hmm. killed um, brings blood guilt on the one who did the killing because of the status uh, shared by other humans of being God's image. Yeah, that's helpful. And a hearty amen for the permissions to eat meat in Genesis. I don't want to get too far away here without talking more about your book. So the book Mm -hmm. is entitled Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So what what we've been talking about so far is being God's image, which is a book that I'm working on next and should be out in about a year or so, maybe by summer 2023. Um, And and that book will talk about the themes that we discussed at the conference. Um, But the book that's already available, Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters, is a book exploring identity and vocation in a covenantal sense. So I'm, I'm zeroing in on the people of Israel at Sinai. And I would argue that it's at Sinai that the people of God find out who they are and what their job is to do in the world. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of a subset or fits within this broader vision we've been talking about already about human identity and vocation. Um, there's something to which all humans are called Um, And that is to be God's representatives, to maintain order, carry on creative work. But because of the fall and because things went wrong, God selects Abraham and his family 
um, from within that the human family, and he appoints Abraham's descendants as a kind of a special project or special ambassadors. And I would argue that at at Sinai, he's placing his name on them to say, you are mine, you belong to me. So now go out and represent me among the nations. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a covenantal sense here that's more specific. Um, there's a lot more stipulations about what this is going to look like. You know, at, in Genesis 1, we have very brief, you know, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the animals. At Sinai, we have lots more regulations about how to live. And I would argue that those regulations are not Israel's means of getting saved because God's already rescued them from Egypt when he brings them to the mountain and says, you are mine. Those regulations are instead showing them how to live as his ambassadors among the nations. They're, they're a matter of mission. Is there a connection there? And I don't want to take you all far afield here. Just curious. Is there a connection there between what you see happening at Sinai, the giving of the law, um, and something like the way of lady wisdom in, say, Proverbs 9? Is that, I mean, is there a connection there that basically the Lord is showing this is the way of the king in his kingdom, yes, this is yes. the way of God and ultimately the way of Christ? Yes, I think so. Um, Proverbs is, of course, not, it doesn't sound very covenantal. Um, mm-hmm. Things are stated more generically, um, but it is clear in Proverbs that these instructions flow out of the fear of Yahweh. Yes, that's what I was thinking. Yes. And, and of course, it's Yahweh at Sinai. So, yeah. And I think, you know, People look back at Sinai and they think, oh, this is so different than the New Testament. We have God laying all these rules on people. And I and I want to say, have you ever read Paul? <laughs> like every letter Paul writes is divided in half. First, here's what God's done for you. And now here's how you need to live in response. And he fleshes it out in all kinds of ways, the ways they are supposed to treat each other and their, their thought life and their actions. There are lots of implications for belonging to Jesus. Mm. And I see the same thing happening at Sinai. Yeah, that's really helpful. Okay. I mentioned I wanted to come back to Jeremiah. Dr. Himes, of course, there's all kinds of cultural things happening at the moment. Plenty of people uh, suffering and suffering very much unjustly. Mm-hmm. How might something like Lamentations or perhaps other passages mm. or books mm. from the Old Testament Help us think better about what it means to be human by the Mm. way we suffer. Oh, I love that question. One of the most important things I talk to my students about at Biola is lament. Mm. And um, I'm convinced uh, there's a great book by Emmanuel Katangole. He's an African bishop and and biblical scholar. And he has a book called Born from Lament. Uh, that's the main title. There's a subtitle. I can't remember off the top of my head, but he says that lament is the foundation of social justice Mm -hmm. that until, and and I think he's right. The more I've sat with this, the more I agree until we are willing to look at our world and say, this is not right. Things should not be like this. We won't be motivated to, to make a difference and to, to make any changes. So there's a, there's a, I think a, Christian subculture that wants to be happy and joyful and put a Mm -hmm. bow on it. And I, I see the old Testament calling us into lament in and lament is not unfaithful. It's faithful. It's a way of saying, Lord, we know you're good and you have good purposes intended for this world. But when we look around us, we see things going haywire, Mm -hmm. you know, Russia invaded Ukraine and there's attacks going on all across the nation and there's great suffering this 
just sort of random land grab. This is an example of something that calls for lament. And if you and I over here in the States are not crying about this, we're not coming alongside our Ukrainian brothers and sisters in a way that's actually going to translate into action. Mm. So not to say that we need to weep over every single thing. We very quickly hit compassion fatigue. But as we look around in our world, I think we need to be quicker to enter into lament with each other in community because communities that can lament what's wrong in the world are communities that can then be galvanized to do something about it. So well said. And that sounds like another podcast that we'll have to do before too long. Mm -hmm. Uh, Really quickly, where can our listeners find you and your work? I am active on Facebook and Twitter. So you can look for Carmen Joy Imes on either. Um, I have a blog, carmenjoyimes.blogspot.com. I have a YouTube channel. So you can uh, look up my name there where I uh, release videos on Tuesdays called Torah Tuesday. I'm, I've taken a hiatus to get settled at Biola, but we're just getting ready to relaunch. So I'm pretty easy to find. Exciting. You should have your own reality show before too long, Dr. Ives. <laughs> that, that would be a lot of fun. We'll call it sunny California. There we um, go. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today. And I hope that we can have you on again soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Southeastern Seminary's mission is to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Almost all of Southeastern's degrees are available fully online, so whether you are in your living room or the classroom, you can receive high-quality theological education. Get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you are called in the future by visiting sebts.edu. Hey everyone, it's Nathaniel Williams, the editor and content manager here at the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture. Now let's be honest, it's been a long week. There's been a lot of heaviness in the world, and I hope you've had a chance to listen to our bonus episode this week on the ongoing crisis in Ukraine. But given the heaviness of this week, well, we thought we would leave you on a lighter note today. So here's the background to the story. Dr. Quinn usually asks rapid-fire questions of our guests about their favorite foods, favorite band, all that kind of thing. Sometimes these things make their way into the episodes. Usually, though, they don't. But Dr. Imes told this gem of a story to us, and, well, it was too good not to share with you all. So please listen, enjoy, and (laughs) ignore my breathy laughter in the background. Okay. Okay. True story. True story. Since you brought up sports, when I was flying home from Wake Forest after the conference, I got this email from Delta Airlines saying, just so you know, there's an event near the airport at LAX and it might cause extra traffic. It might be harder to find transportation. You might not be able to find parking. And I was like, huh, okay. So I let my husband know, Hey, they say there's an event going on near the airport. Um, I, I don't know what it is. Also, but it known, as come- <laughs> also known as the Super Bowl, <laughs> which I literally like I, it, to my credit, I did know that it was Super Bowl weekend, but I did not know the LA Rams were playing, even though I live in LA and I did not know the Super Bowl was that in LA. Is hilarious. So that is how completely out of touch I am when it comes to Nathaniel, sports. you've got to include that in the podcast. Yeah, that's awesome. 
So, strangely enough, we begin and end this episode with, of all things, references to the Super Bowl. Thank you all for listening to the Christ and Culture podcast. We'll see you next week. <laughs>